Good morning. Welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about the history of our publicly available transportation, public spaces, and what surrounds us in the public sphere. Today's episode is part two. We continue with the public space of the American College campus, and I'm Cheryl Gross Glazer, your host. I don't know if the uh, the sound quality will be different, maybe better today, because I am surrounded almost by a load of laundry in my closet. It's particularly, it's always cozy in here, but it's uh, particularly messy today. <laughs> uh, we're going to start with our moment in equity, and. Um, as we were saying in, in our last episode, how much slavery uh, or the profits therefrom contributed to uh, the, uh, the first colleges in our country, uh, the early colleges, I should say. And one of them was Georgetown University. And we're going to go a little deeper into the history of Georgetown and slavery um, because it's particularly, it's particularly gruesome. It's, and we're not going to go into its suffering details, but just uh, just just what happened, uh, the facts of it. So, uh, in 1838, so that's that's relatively uh, late. We ended with 1826 in our last episode. In 1838, so we already have a strong strong abolitionist movement at this time. Uh, we have Georgetown University, which is in Washington, D.C., and the university was not doing well financially. So they were considering selling uh, the people that the university owned in order to continue. Now, remember at this time, not only is the abolition, abolitionist movement strong, but as close as Pennsylvania and New Jersey um, were outlawing uh, were outlawing slavery often in phases, um, as New York State did. Um, but it was legal; slavery was legal at that time in the states surrounding the district, Maryland and Virginia, and it was legal in the District of Columbia, in our nation's capital. Pope Paul III um, had banned slavery of indigenous people in the Americas in 1539. But the African slave trade was still permitted. Um, and by 1838, slavery was already illegal throughout the countries of Catholic Europe. And remember, Georgetown uh, is a Catholic university. So uh, the, the learned Jesuits at Georgetown must have been aware not only of what was going on in terms of the abolitionist movement, but what was going on in the Catholic world. Uh, the following is based on an incredibly researched uh, New York Times article written in 2016 by Rachel Swarns. It is, will be in our show notes. Um, like the support of William and Mary, that was from the sale of tobacco. That's what the original charter of William and Mary um, uh, prescribed. Georgetown was supported by the agric its agricultural holdings in Maryland. Uh, but these were not productive, and the sale of uh, these 272 enslaved people would be enough money to allow the school to remain in operation, which it does to this day. Uh, the New York Times article makes clear that the Jesuits who ran Georgetown were fully aware of what they would be doing when they were contemplating the sale of these slaves further south. And indeed, Jesuit leadership in Rome was initially against the sale, declaring, and I quote, it would be better to suffer financial disaster than suffer the loss of our souls with the sale of the slaves. The priests were also aware of the harsher conditions of slavery in the Deep South and in Louisiana where the slaves were uh, headed uh, when they were sold. And these Jesuits were aware that families might be separated once down in Louisiana. And I quote from the article, Father Milady promised his superiors that the slaves would continue to practice their religions, their religion, meaning Catholicism. Going back to the quote, families would not be separated and the money raised by the sale would not be used to pay off debt for operating expenses, unquote, of the college. 
none of this came to pass, um, which the school's leadership learned of within the next few years. At least some of the priests at Georgetown wrote down in journals about the panic and distress of the, of the persons, the enslaved persons, boarding onto a ship bound for Louisiana. The uproar in the church following the sale led to Father Lady's resignation and a papal pronouncement condemning slavery. Although not banning, out, banning it outright or even prohibiting such sales as Georgetown's. And now we return uh, to the subject matter of our episode. But that does give you pause, does it not? You know, uh, where is the money come from? So in our last episode, we did leave off in 1826, a few years after the establishment of the University of Virginia uh, with the death of Thomas Jefferson. In the 1820s through the 1850s saw the establishment of many U.S. colleges, probably the most prolific era of college establishment in history. And if you look at a timeline of this, and yes, that's in the show notes, there is actually a timeline of uh, college establishment. We find existing cities and towns instead of new or very young ones, and they are interested in higher education, sometimes considering a col- establishing a college or university as a symbol of putting themselves on the map, or sub- sometimes for states to establish an academic center. Uh, despite the proliferation of colleges, uh, or maybe because of it, uh, the Jeffersonian ideal of an academic village was not um, and has not been generally widely accepted. And why was this? You know, these places are putting themselves on the map where they're creating a place for their citizens or people in their region to uh, get higher education. Why not, you know, go the best, really think about design as being integral to that academic experience as Jefferson did. So why not? not? It turns out that smaller, uniquely designed buildings, what a surprise, are more expensive to design and to build and probably even to maintain uh, than one large building or having cookie cutter buildings. Other ideas from early college architecture and land use, however, very much lived on. Uh, expenses and the relative wealth of institutions and their purposes all played a role in the physical structures and even whether a college had any grounds at all, um, any public space at all. Oberlin is a good example. There we have an existing town and the college was built around the town square. Uh, Oberlin was a little unusual in that it was co-ed, whereas most colleges of the day remained separate for either men or women. Uh, Vassar, one of the seven sister schools to the Ivy League, now itself co-ed, reflected a trend toward rural environments, uh, though not anywhere so remote as to seem like wilderness, but to keep impressionable young women away from what, in 1852, the founders of the Valley Union Cemetery, Seminary, not cemetery, (laughs) that's quite the uh, mispronunciation there, Valley Union Seminary in Virginia called Peculiar Temptations. We know what that was. We didn't want those young ladies going out and experimenting. so these can be impressive buildings, usually one building in, the, in these colleges. And in Vassar's case, uh, the, the building, its original building, had the most interior space of any building in the entire U.S. until the Capitol was completed in 1868. And Vassar's case was um, a women's college in an area that had, certainly in the Northeast, plenty of colleges already. But as you go across the country, you get that boosterism effect of, of places establishing colleges because we're here, we're important. So, of course, one thing you have when you're important is a college or university. Um, these colleges were also built with an interior focus sometimes, even though they had the one building on a family-like domestic atmosphere rather than a town-like setting. Um, in contrast, though, you had places like women's normal colleges, which were uh, teacher colleges, and they were less grand, usually made up of one building, um, and 
not really thinking about that academic experience necessarily. Uh, it should be noted that many men's colleges of the mid-19th century were also one building affairs. Again, we're thinking being a little, a little cheaper uh, on the one hand and sometimes on the other hand, oh, we'll build this one building and it'll make a statement as opposed to having a bunch of smaller buildings. So as quickly observed at Vassar, one building for 400 students did not promote a home-like atmosphere, and there began a preference for smaller, home-style dormitories. And in steps in is another character from an American university whose name is known, and certainly made his stamp on the American college campus, Frederick Law Olmsted. So we have Frederick Law Olmsted coming in, um, and the Morrill Act, also known as the Land-Grand College Act. And these two um, kind of changed the game to some extent, maybe even rethought or further thought out uh, that Jeffersonian ideal. And a little factoid is that Senator Morrill and Olmsted knew each other. So each state with this land-grant college act could define its own version of the People's College. Uh, this was a few years before the Civil War, so we're not talking all people. Uh, we are talking white men in general. And certainly we're not talking enslaved people. And generally, uh, for the most part, we're not talking women. So some of these land-grant colleges emphasized a farming or mechanical education, while others were envisioned to uh, deliver a broad spectrum of courses of study. These colleges were founded to provide education involving skills, often for, for farming, as I said, and related work, not necessarily to educate the elite of lawyers and clergymen, as we saw you know, early on with Harvard, William and Mary, Yale, etc. So we have Frederick Law Olmsted. He's, of course, um, famous as a designer of parks notably Central Park in Manhattan, Prospect Park in Brooklyn, the Emerald Necklace in Boston. Um, we can, and if I'm sure we'll do many episodes, we could do a whole, a whole season on Frederick Law Olmsted. What an interesting guy. Um, interesting about the times when you read about his life. Anyway, we're not going to go into that in this episode, but we could we could that's a rabbit hole to dive down and you know you'd never have to come back up <laughs> so, uh, so some some of these uh, some campuses that he designed were near or in cities such as American University and Gallaudet both in Washington DC all of the buildings at Gallaudet which is a university for the deaf um, that Olmsted designed as well as much of his campus layout uh, survived to this day uh, he designed uh, land-grant colleges as well, such as uh, Cornell's campus redesign. He did the first plan for the University of California at Berkeley, although Berkeley ended up not using the design. He designed lots of private colleges, such as Stanford, with uh, lots of back and forth with the eponymous benefactor, I think I got that right, Bryn Mawr, Smith College, and Mount Holyoke. And we're going to dive a little bit into Smith from time to time in this episode. Uh, quoting from a history about the Smith College campus, a 1992 article by Lisa Chase. I'm going to quote quite a bit because it's, I think, really instructive. Olmsted's views were formed by the, quote, total community, unquote, ideal of the New England village setting. The antithesis of this concept is seen in the formal, regular pattern of English universities, such as Cambridge and Oxford. To achieve the community ideal, Olmsted proposed laying out a campus as a domestically scaled suburban community in a park-like setting, associated with a town or city, yet remaining a distinct enclave. In addition, he proposed the cottage system, which he developed in his land-grant college plans. The cottage system opposed the custom of housing students in barrack-like dormitories, recommending instead 
large domestic houses containing a respectably furnished drawing room and dining room for the common use of students, end quote. Uh, and these would have rooms for generally 20 to 40 students. And the reason why we talk about Smith, because if you visit Smith College today, uh, what Ms. Chase describes uh, from, from Olmsted's ideal is, is Smith College, its design and placement in relationship to the town of Northampton, Massachusetts, uh, those house-like uh, dormitories, the, the kind of meandering way of the campus, um, and how buildings are set to one another. Um, it's really quintessential Olmsted, and it's a lovely campus, and Northampton is a great town to visit. So even if you're not there, unrelated, you know, even if you're there, unrelated to the college, it's a decent, it's a decent place to uh, to go for a few days. So Olmsted's first college design was in 1866, so we're talking right after the Civil War for Berkeley when it was still a private institution and the college planned to transform farmland on San Francisco Bay into a campus. Olmsted conceived of the campus as having an integral relationship with the community, but neither wholly in the city nor wholly rural. So that's again what we um, heard described about, about his uh, ideal. He drafted a plan envisioning a community, including the college, as a naturalistic park. And if you go to uh, the Emerald Necklace in Boston or Central Park or Prospect Park, you really get the feeling of what he's talking about. He departed from these, this usual barracks and um, created this, these private-looking homes, um, but the plan was abandoned. Uh, another departure from the co conventional college um, planning for Olmsted was the lack of symmetry in terms of spatial layout of the campus and a, a rejection of the practice in many places to erect that one large building that would either house everything or almost everything in terms of classrooms and students. His goal was to be picturesque rather than formal. Uh, later in 1866 he planned what became the University of Massachusetts right outside of Amherst um, much further from a big city than Berkeley. He planned an old-style, walkable, pretty suburban neighborhood with public common space or park, something more like old sections of Brookline, Massachusetts than Levittown um, on Long Island in New York or any other post-World War II suburb. So when he's thinking suburban, he's not thinking um, exactly like suburban today. He's thinking, as I said, more like Brookline, Mass or Garden City in New York. Um, like Berkeley, however, uh, this plan was not adopted. So it's interesting that he's both in fashion, um, but not necessarily being embraced. Uh, because the Morrill Act required that land-grant colleges have an area for drill exercises, like military drill exercises, the University of Massachusetts plan had included a village common that could double as a drill ground. Um, Despite the early rejection of, of plans, um, Olmsted's plan did win him fans, and he, he had commissions to design other colleges. He designed what became the University of Maine, then Gallaudet, then the Pennsylvania Agricultural College, and the, Hampst the Hampton Institute in Virginia and Cornell. At Cornell, Olmsted was forced to accept a typical quadrangle, as the founder, Ezra Cornell, wanted one, and the college had already begun its uh, construction. Iowa State University, I'm using a, the modern name, was next, soon to follow, uh, and keeping the one large college building it had begun construction on. Um, we have Kansas State University, uh, both Kansas State and Iowa founded as agricultural colleges, Michigan State University, and Olmsted's desire to avoid one large uh, building and his idea of common large houses where students would live were rejected by these new state-funded agricultural colleges. His park-like park -like layout, there we go, was embraced, uh, but the large buildings, those large buildings that he wouldn't have liked really and, and weren't his ideal, 
are now off in the center uh, of these colleges and their iconic buildings. As I said, that, that one exception is Smith, which is still a women's college. It was chartered in 1871, founded um, in 1885, and, and it embraced that cottage system and continues to. Uh, women, um, one of my daughters indeed was one of them, uh, live in these beautiful yet homey groups. Um, there's 30 to 60 young women in these large houses. There's single rooms, double rooms. There's um, usually a few larger gathering spaces. There's smaller dining halls throughout campus, but not, not one at each of these houses. Uh, Julia Child went to Smith, and there's indeed a Julia Child day at Smith then with food that reflects her cooking, although I, I would guess probably not quite the level. <laughs> French food. So the design and building of Smith, which took place over decades, spanned from the the end of Frederick Law Olmsted's tenure at his landscape and design and architecture firm to his son's hegemony at the at the family uh, firm. And it's a nice illustration of the preferences. We have preferences of client versus trends in style and professional expertise, with the firm insisting on keeping to a set master plan and being quite demanding about details, even about how to cut the shrubbery. Among Smith's, Smith's leaders, there was talk about expenses every time someone from the Olmsted firm would uh, communicate. And according to the Chase article, by the time Smith was being built, styles in architecture were, cha were changing. Some of these styles we'll discuss later in a way that reflected the immense, immense wealth and tastes of the Gilded Age. But Smith, Smith also keeps to another part of the design, which was its botanical gardens. Um, those large houses, meandering paths um, instead of grand vistas or huge quadrangles, um, and new buildings were not always built according to the master plan. What did bode well for Smith and for the ideal layout of, of Olmsted's academic vision was the hiring of successive landscapers who had been trained at Kew Gardens in England, who each stayed for decades. Um, and I'm going to quote in a second from Chase, and whose, quote, cunning and stubborn defense of landscape from the depredations of builders and architects, unquote. Um, and I think this really does give the campus a special and unusual feel in that uh, they're not they're not sacrificing the natural environment and that feeling of space and the campus as a park for uh, how are we going to most efficiently build? How are we going to save money? Although, you see, that even was an expense for them. If you've ever had an architect who's very intent on a certain vision, um, but you need to scale back in terms of money, you know what they're talking about. Um, and, and still, obviously, very dedicated to the beauty of their campus. Mm. Drinking my coffee, I made a little strong today. I have to say a little too strong, but it's still good. Getting a little a little lukewarm there. Okay, so, so Jefferson and Olmsted have similar ideas for this academic experience. A similar dislike of housing in everything um, in one large building. But, but when you compare UVA, a University of Virginia, to, um, to Olmsted's designs, UVA is more formal, uh, more in keeping with the concept of establishing uh, prominent institutions in a new country. Um, like Olmsted as well, Jefferson's plan showed room for growth and different building styles in the future. Um, but their common designs, these, you know, what they had in common, Olmsted and Jefferson, uh, for smaller dining halls and houses proved expensive and so was not uniformly adopted. In fact, was, it was more the exception than the rule. Um, and this holds true for Jefferson's designs of pavilions to house professors, classrooms that are not identical to each other, um, you know, so that what surrounds that large quadrangle, that iconic quadrangle, is more feels more like a village instead of like a formal university, right? 
Um, so there was a foretelling in Jefferson for what happened with, with Olstead. And when I say Jefferson, you know, I do allude, I'll, I'll do mention those influences on Jefferson that we mentioned in the last episode. It's not like Jefferson out of whole cloth created all of these ideas, but he certainly did bring certain elements together. Um, so that lack of uniformity was completely new and it doesn't, it's, it stays on the American college campus as the exception, not as the rule, but it never completely goes away. Um, but his less formal design that is attractive to land grant colleges, uh, what it does allow for, not only in terms of a park-like setting, it, it allows for growth. You know, when you establish a very formal master plan where everything looks the same and then 80 years later the money is different, the materials are different, the student body perhaps is different, um, and, you, and you start building in a completely different style as you expand, it's not always, it doesn't always go well altogether. Whereas if you have this a little bit more meandering campus, not the same symmetry, um, sometimes you can integrate buildings of different styles a little easier and, um, and it comes together as a whole, even though it wasn't all designed the same way. I, I like to look at Howard University uh, in Washington, D.C., although it's not an Olmsted campus. I think it's a good, a good example of an urban campus that's kept a, lot, a less formal feel. Certainly its buildings are not all in the same style. I couldn't find anything online about its design um, and, and more than the most cursory de details about architecture there. Um, other than, you know, right after the Civil War in 1866, um, it's conceived of as a theological seminary. Um, but by the time of its founding, less than a year and a half later in 1867, it, the institution was founded as a university. It was founded with one building, um, and Howard University is named after General Oliver O. Howard, a Civil War hero who is um, both a founder, one of the founders of the university, and at the same time the commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, which, if you know about Reconstruction, um, did exist. And that's a great rabbit hole, by the way, to, to fall down. Lots of really interesting information about that. Um, most of Howard's land was not acquired at the time of its founding, and it's unusual for a u an urban campus that that lacked that early huge money and that great deal of property to have so much public space and to have such a nice campus. But I have to say, I do prefer campuses where there's both plenty of public space, but not that kind of matchy-matchy look. <laughs> uh, once you step off the main avenue of Georgia Avenue, there's a very peaceful and expansive feel at, at Howard. Um, and I would contrast on the other side, Boston University, uh, which doesn't really feel like it has much of a campus, although it does have campus spaces. Um, Howard has a much more um, campusy, greener feel. Uh, maybe part of that is that Howard is a little further out, although it's still in Washington, D.C. It's a little further out from the center of the city than Boston University is from the center of Boston. Um, Washington University in St. Louis is a nice example to bring in at this point because its founding and development are both similar and in stark contrast to Howard's um, in terms of uh, design and architecture. Although I'm going to call it Wash St. Louis was uh, a lot shorter than Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, although Wash St. Louis was founded in downtown St. Louis as a school to educate immigrant workers who were poor, the school later acquired land um, and the grounds designed by Olmsted and the buildings uh, were uh, designed by the firm of Cope and Stewartson, winner of a national competition that, that the university held. They were designed to look like Oxford and Cambridge. And if you look at the images of the school, it is very formal. Um, and this is what one of my kids, what, one of my kids had a paid visit there and called Wash St. Lou 
a matchy-matchy campus, that everything just looked too much alike, and this was not someplace she was going. It's a great school, and uh, it is. So don't turn it down because, you know, necessarily because of that. But it, it was a school that, unlike Howard, which stayed true to its core purpose, I have to say here we have Wash St. Lou transformed um, from its immigrant root, worker roots. Maybe I wouldn't say turned aside, but maybe expanded way beyond that. Um, and I don't know what the college does to this day in terms of addressing immigrants or whether, you know, it's completely turned aside from that. I don't know. Um, many colleges were designed in whole or in part by the Olmsted Brothers firm after Olmsted passed away um, or after he retired. Um, so you have the University of Rochester, University of Indiana at Bloomington, University of Chicago, Louisiana State University, uh, and the University of Mississippi. Private colleges with some Olmsted firm designs include Yale, Brown, Princeton, and Harvard. Uh, but these were designs that were less like of a paterfamilias, the first Frederick Law Olmsted, and uh, they were more formal. If you look at any of those images, much more formal. Almost from the start, land-grant colleges capitalized on the altered view that physical exercise and sports belonged on campus, with sports teams and rivalries playing an important role in fundraising and school spirit. Uh, for older liberal arts colleges, this was a big change from the attitude that such activities had no role on campus. They had nothing to do with the scholastic purpose of a college. However, they all began to construct sports facilities, um, some as early as the 1860s. And the situation by 1900 was one we would recognize today with lots of money spent on sports facilities and recruiting students for teams. Uh, this added to the advantage of a rural location because you would have plenty of land not only for public space but also for these um, land eating, if you will, large facilities of such things as gyms, uh, gymnasiums, stadiums, and, and even boating facilities. In the 1930s, Le Caborciere, and I've probably mispronounced that, uh, called the American College um, and I quote, a world in itself, a temporary paradise, an urban unit in itself, a small or large city, but a green city. But as I said before in, in episode one, uh, education is, is a field that follows trends. A little more coffee there. Not only in terms of education, but in terms of attracting students, in terms of design and layout. Uh, there's often a keeping up with the Joneses kind of thing, and what's in fashion one day is not necessarily in fashion another day. Okay, another sip of coffee, and then we're going to go on to another trend. The German scholastic model came to the U.S., uh, we're talking late 1800s, with a rejection of the campus at all, and um, a rejection of the low educational standards they saw, um, what they saw permeating uh, American um, university education. This movement also rejected the idea of student dormitories at all, and um, an exam example of this is uh, Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Now, as you know today, uh, it does have a campus, so it, it later turned away from this, uh, this movement. It was a movement that soon passed. Um, some of its academic trends became integrated, but not, not that idea of we're just a building in a city. Um, at the same time, and we're talking pre-Beaux-Arts movement here, but not by not too much. We're going to discuss that in a moment. Uh, a, more, a different, more reactionary, reactionary movement was taking place. Uh, this was an academic as well um, as an architectural and planning uh, reaction. Many thought that American higher education, again, not sufficiently demanding. It should return to the classics, that students were distracted by things beyond their scholastic pursuits, 
Um, and so we come back. Uh, we come back to a style that, that predates um, the American colonies, the closed quadrangle and the monastic ideal, right? Uh, so we return to this closed quadrangle, we return to the classics, um, and this idea of keeping students apart from society. A good example is Yale University, where there's separate residential colleges with their closed quadrangles. And I have to say, I've known people uh, who have attended Yale, and when I was in college, I visited Yale quite a bit. I had a really good friend who was there, and I can tell you those closed quadrangles did not uh, deter in any way the kind of behavior they were intended to deter in terms of creating somehow a monastic existence. Did not happen. All right. But some of them are very lovely to look at. <laughs> the the campus the campus areas. Um, so at a time when you have immigrants pouring onto American shores, there's an embrace by college leaders for a campus secluded, uh, apart from a city or town that it's in. Um, an embracing of the ideals of Cambridge and Oxford with their placement on the pedestal of Anglican values, monkish scholars, and kind of relatively wealthy white-only student bodies. Uh, Harvard and Bowdoin erected strong gates. Uh, we have new construction at Princeton uh, at the time to be Gothic in character, and its new graduate school was built as a closed quadrangle. Um, other colleges, such as Bryn Mawr and the University of Pennsylvania, erected buildings reminiscent of the medieval period. But now we're now coming into the Gilded Age, and after I take my sip of coffee, we'll get into that. And with the Gilded Age, so we're talking uh, 1890s, early 1900s, we have changing tastes again. We have super wealthy Gilded Age donors and founders of institutions. Um, the perspective of a university within a city or as a city it's in itself gains steam. Um, and we have, of course, Beaux-Arts architecture. This movement followed, um, follows up the Chicago exhibition of 1893, and if you've listened to um, even a few episodes of the History Chicks, they often mention and laugh about how every person, uh, every famous person alive at that time or who became famous in the next few decades either attended or had some kind of strong connection to that World's Fair, uh, which was officially called the World's Columbian Exposition. Uh, coming out of the Chicago exhibition, we have the City Beautiful movement, um, which we'll definitely have to d dive into in some episodes. So you have a certain uh, style of architecture, you have a certain style of public space, you have the idea of giving lots of money, which allows for expensive grounds and buildings. Okay, so with the Gilded Age, we have new colleges and universities in Beaux Arts designed, uh, started often with very large donations by a single donor. And these would include the University of Chicago, founded by Rockefeller, Cornell University, we have founded by Ezra Cornell, who began the Western Union Telegraph Company. Uh, we have Johns Hopkins, Vanderbilt, and Stanford. And, and that's just mentioning some. Uh, we also see some small colleges that were sometimes transformed with a large donation into uh, a large university, which happened uh, with Duke University. Uh, we have naming a school for a prominent donor, which is already, at this time, uh, a tradition that goes back to Harvard. But the donations following the Civil War and into the next century were on a much grander scale. Um, tying an earlier era to a brash, affluent one, uh, in some ways, is the designing of Stanford University. Um, we have Leland Stanford, who was a governor of California, and he was president of the Central Pacific Railroad. In Stanford's case, he decided, he and his wife decided to found a university um, 
after his only son unexpectedly passed away of typhoid at the age of 15 while traveling in Europe. And, and Stanford and his wife found this university, and in fact, they named it after their son. Uh, the official name of Stanford is, I think, uh, has Leland Stanford Jr. In, in the name. We also have a classic example of a wealthy, outspoken uh, donor with strong opinions uh, and a sense of style that's not necessarily well matched to the designer that he hires. So he hires Frederick Law Olmsted uh, to draft this master plan, not to do the architecture, but the layout. And he recommended, uh, there's a recommendation by Olmsted for a design similar to what he had advocated for at land-grant colleges. But no surprise, Stanford wanted something that was more flat in terms of terrain and a more formal design. Uh, he didn't want anything to look like a humble academic town. In, in, in a way, there's something reminiscent at Stanford of almost a more formal UVA, if you're going to think about it, an academic village, but one that uh, doesn't have small-scale buildings. It's, it's much more formal. You're thinking Italian villa more than, um, you know, something New Englandish, if you will. So one could ask why a person with enough wealth to hire anyone would hire a person with a long resume of designs at odds with one's own ideas. I don't know. Uh, Stanford has open, those open arcade so those covered walkway paths outside buildings. It has an enclosed quadrangle um, with more that were in the early plans. Uh, it doesn't face, it's not part of any town. Um, so again, it's, it's, that's, if you think about the time that it was built, early 1900s, we're getting away from that. Uh, Stanford also hired an architect in addition to Olmsted, and he se this architect seems to have acted partly as a go-between. Um, and he, of course, Stanford also completely rejects the cottage system of housing. We also have in the Gilded Age um, new universities that were in a city and had limited space. Um, and I'll say that the space limitation uh, was probably not immediately apparent. These universities probably thought they were getting, they were acquiring plenty of land, um, and then it turned out not to be, not to be so plenty. Let's look at Columbia, Columbia University. It was a pre-existing university with roots back to colonial New York City. Um, indeed, like William and Mary, or rather like its, its predecessor, it was originally named King's College, then renamed after the Revolution. It began with a royal charter, this one from King George II in 1754. Alexander was the first, Alexander Hamilton, the first Secretary of the Treasury, enrolled in a student um, before he dropped out to join the Revolution. Early graduates include John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the U.S., Governor Morris, the author of the final draft of the U.S. Constitution, and Robert R. Livingston, a member of the five-man committee that drafted the Declaration of Independence. We usually think of Jefferson, Adams, and Franklin, um, but Livingston was a part of that committee as well. Hamilton also served as a trustee after the school was renamed Columbia uh, following the Revolution. Um, so let's go to its, to its beginnings because it shows a nice tra trajectory and it's not completely untypical in some ways. King's College first held classes in a schoolhouse uh, adjoining Trinity Church, so that's all the way lower Broadway and Wall Street um, in Manhattan. It's, it's when it's founded at the center of this very small city of New York, which was really like a village. Um, then the school moves uptown to Park Place, uh, so uh, close to City Hall Park if you know that area. So just really a 10 minute walk above. This used to be uh, around where JNR Music World was, if you know that area, which was a great place. Um, and it had also a great art supply store. Uh, and then Columbia moves uptown to, to what is now Midtown in 1854 to 49th Street and Madison. However, 
uh, with expansion, Colombia's divisions become, uh, are scattered around. And so, excuse me, in 1892, the university purchased a four-block parcel of land uptown on Broadway and 116th Street. Uh, it's by no means the boondocks at this point, but if you think about a four-block area, we're not talking about that much land. So not really thinking about a huge amount of growth. It's not far from Harlem. It's an easy walk from the already growing Upper West Side. Uh, we're now many years past when the Dakota apartment building was constructed in 1884. And you'll see um, Dakota was where John Lennon lived, Lauren Bacall lived. Um, and there's early photos of the Dakota like as this outpost with nothing around it. Um, <laughs> uh, and we're past. We're way past that. And the Dakota, by the way, is at 72nd Street and Central Park West, right by an entrance into the park. A lovely, a lovely area in the park, by the way. I would say that Columbia's mistake, very obvious mistake, purchasing so little land and originally designing at this area a, a commuter school. They had no, in the original plans, there's no room for dormitories. If you want to see a fabulous view of the central part of this Columbia campus, there's a movie that really captures it well. I mean, in addition to looking up photos on Google. Um, and the movie is called Still Alice. It's with Julianne Moore and Alec Baldwin. It is a very depressing movie about early Alzheimer's, but Julianne Moore plays um, a professor. I think she's a professor, um, and she she runs on the campus. She's walking across the campus um, in different scenes, and so it's a really nice movie to see to see the campus. Um, by the Beaux Arts period, it's recognized that a large open space was an important feature of the American College campus, a natural center of the campus. And its preferred over a, preferred over a square was this elongated rectangle um, to make obvious uh, visual points at either end. A classic early example uh, of a Beaux Arts campus is the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. And I have to say, I haven't been there, although I've been to Annapolis. Uh, but this, the photographs show a very formal campus, uh, pretty separate from the city, with grand buildings, a parade grounds, um, and a large quadrangle, as well as off to the side, a formal, what looks like um, a drive up to a French chateau or an English estate. And, and this, this formal area is called Tecumseh Court. Uh, for the Indian warrior Tecumseh stands watch over the site of noon meal formations for the brigade, <laughs> brigade of midshipmen normally held at 12.05 p.m. weekdays during the academic year, schedule and weather permitting, according to the website. Uh, this is a very pristine campus, um, much more pristine, than, for example, than you'll see at Columbia or MIT, another Beaux Arts campus. Um, because it is separate, um, the newer buildings are set off in such a way that you really can get a feel for what the Beaux Arts campus was like when nothing else was there. Um, and you can see them without looking at the modern additions to the campus. As Venable pointed out in his book, um, and I talk about him in the earlier episode. He wrote a book that I referred to a lot, and it's in the show notes. Uh, these campuses, these Beaux-Arts campuses, are lavish. They're evocative, evocative of Louis XIV architecture. Uh, they're very urbane, quite different from that New England, rural town, suburban kind of town ideal of Frederick Law Olmsted. And in terms of color, they're also much brighter buildings. Um, rather than being dark brick, they're usually white or off-white. And another example can be seen easily in Boston. Uh, right near the T is Harvard, uh, one of the T stops is Harvard Medical School. The T is their subway system, by the way, if you don't know. Um, and right near one of these uh, stops is Harvard Medical School. Um, so we don't have a campus apart from the city. We have one that's off and open to a regular street, and that's why it's so easy to, to visit, and it's so e accessible to public transportation. Um, 
Another example is American University, but going back to Harvard Medical School, you have that marble, that white, very formal look with a big open space. Uh, then we have American University in Washington, D.C. Um, it demonstrates the rejection of one of these old-fashioned plans by Olmsted in favor of a Beaux-Arts design with two large rectangular quads. Um, it doesn't look that much like the original plan now, but there's still large, lovely open spaces with lots of grass that are well used by students. Um, by 1900, this public space, generally a quadrangle, whether closed or not, was considered um, a critical element, you know, a must-do for the American college campus. And the Jeffersonian ideal for a long quadrangle was now in vogue. So today we consider the center of that original campus of the University of Virginia with its rotunda at one end now restored as a classic of campus design. But there is also parallel open spaces on either side of this famous uh, quadrangle. Uh, unlike many universities situated in larger cities or smaller cities uh, that have grown exponentially, UVA has really managed to retain its beautiful open spaces um, and its feeling of being a, a collegiate town and having that, that atmosphere that not every large university has been able to do. Um, but campuses that have been designed with UVA in mind, no surprise, reflect more the times in which they were planned often. Uh, these include places like Carnegie Mellon, whose plans include a large quadrangle and some smaller open spaces off of it, but on a quite closed campus. Uh, this is similar to the plan for Johns Hopkins, which rejected its earlier, uh, you know, no commuter school origins. The plan for the university then very much, uh, it was not in the center of Baltimore at the time, is of a closed campus with a large quadrangle as a main public space. And it, it's a lovely campus. The Beaux-Arts interpretation of the UVA design can be seen um, in Atlanta at Emory in Houston at Rice University and at the University of uh, Rochester and in Los Angeles at U UCLA among others. Uh, now these campuses today have integrated additions and substantial changes over the decades. Um, so some universities more, some less have, have sort of kept to these Beaux-Arts uh, designs. I'm not going to explore the different architectural styles of Georgian versus Mediterranean um, architecture. We have some campuses trying for the feel of a UVA versus some constructing what it evokes like a Roman imperial feel, something more MIT or Columbia or Naval Academy. I would say more MIT or Naval Academy or Harvard Medical School that have that Roman imperial feel. Uh, Venable also talks about the early 1900s as a time of a wholesale rejection of this earlier Olmsted um, type of design with the haphazard building arrangements and the park-like setting. Um, ironically, the Olmsted firm, you know, we're talking generation two or three now, uh, it participated in many of those projects which reject that earlier uh, that early, those earlier preferences of its founder. Some older schools, some such as Princeton and Yale, saw redesigns or lesser changes in uh, throughout these eras. Another school that adopts a plan with changes was the University of Wisconsin. Um, Oberlin, in contrast to many schools, managed both to protect its existing open space and to add open space, which is very unusual as it both rejects and implements some of the Beaux-Arts um, comprehensive plan. There were master plan competitions for campus designs uh, were very much in vogue. So such schools as Berkeley, University of Minnesota, and Mar uh, Carnegie Mellon held these big competitions. None other than the wife of William Randolph Hearst funded the competition at Berkeley at a tune of $200,000 in 1899 dollars. The prospectus called this a project to build a city of learning. I'm going to pour a little more coffee at this point.
I don't tr actually drink that much. I just want to say that in my own defense. Okay. Uh, the belief among the supporters of the early University of California campus at Berkeley was that a grand, beautiful campus would prompt the legislature to equally match the grandeur of the university's design with its largesse in tax dollars. So this is kind of the opposite of uh, many of these land-grant colleges or other kind of colleges which said, we'll save money, we'll build the one building, right? Berkeley is sort of like, if we build something great, they will come and they're going to want to maintain this because this is going to be a jewel in the crown. The Berkeley competition winner was a Frenchman named Emile Bernard, and he created an urban plan for a Beaux-Arts campus. Bernard's plan, however, was never realized uh, due to necessary adjustments for topography and because he refused to stay in California to be the supervising architect. So what happens when you say, I'm, uh, you know, here's the plan, realize it on your own? The next architect comes in and has ideas of, of his or her own. So instead, we have one of his competitors replacing him and who also replaced most of his plan. This architect, John Galen Howard, was American. And like his countrymen peers in the competition, he envisions, envisions a more spacious design, less city, more University of Virginia, uh, with a central mall, university buildings along the sides, with the eye drawn to a domed structure at the end of the rectangle. The University of Washington in Seattle is a beautiful example of the Beaux-Arts style of architecture. Um, a child of the Columbian Exposition in, held in Chicago in 1893 is uh, the Alaska Pacific Yukon Exposition held in 1909 in Seattle. It produced a Beaux-Arts layout and temporary buildings. Only some of the buildings were constructed to be permanent, but those and the layout remained. Um, and it's interesting that uh, in 1900, Wash U in St. Louis breaks ground on its campus. And then in 1904, uh, before its students were using it, the initial campus at Wash St. Lou was were leased to host the 1904 World's Fair. Um, so an interesting juxtaposition there that this is a very... Uh, popular kind of architecture, popular kind of layout, and it's it's multi-use to, to some extent. If you've seen the Judy Garland classic movie, Meet Me in St. Louis, uh, you know that it takes place at the cusp of this World's Fair that was held in St. Louis, with the final scene being at the fair. Now, a bow arts did not necessarily mean buildings designed in the style of the early Columbia and MIT buildings. Uh, it, meant the, it also meant the campus layout. Many colleges chose colonial or Georgian styles of ar architecture to emphasize their patriotism to America. Johns Hopkins is a good example of that. Uh, at Rice University in Houston is an example of ex having expansive public spaces, large quadrangles of formal paths and grass with Gothic architecture and covered walkways, um, somewhat reminiscent of University of Virginia, but also reminiscent of Renaissance Europe. Here in at Johns Hopkins, we have campuses that are, that are in major cities, but are really completely apart from them. They're oases from the surrounding communities as opposed to um, being a part of them and accessible to them. Uh, the Beaux-Arts craze also reached existing campuses with their lack of uniform styles. Uh, so we have uh, Princeton, um, Oberlin, um, never executed. It's, it's plan to completely redo um, Oberlin. Um, it, their, their master plan was embraced by the college president, but nobody else. So most interesting is the work of this. We have one architect, Charles Zeller Clowder, uh, who planned mostly Beaux-Arts campuses, but with medieval buildings designed, which turned... Um, and 
And I'm going to point to the University of Colorado here because to me it's so odd to think of the University of Colorado on the one hand and medieval design on the other because if you've seen the University of Colorado, it doesn't look medieval at all. Um, he, he, he has these medieval buildings and some of what he designs, but at University of Colorado Boulder, he... Um, plans with the look of a rural Italian village with an upper-class villa theme through the use of local quarries for stone so that the college fits into the gorgeous scenery of the mountains around. So now let's go. We're going to jump ahead post-World War II, post-Depression. We have um, a very different college that we're returning to here. Okay, the, the coffee is getting colder and colder. I will say that, but it's good. And it, it's 90 degrees outside, so, you know, it's fine that it's not hot. And I don't like, um, I don't like iced coffee. Okay, so post-World War II, right? We have the GI Bill, and we have changing times, and we have um, an America that's on the rise. So we have increasing enrollments. We have increasingly diverse student bodies in many ways, in terms of age, in terms of ethnicity, in age of the student, you know, students of different ages, in terms of being diverse, in terms of ethnicities and race. Um, socio, you have students of very different socioeconomic backgrounds uh, coming together and in terms of gender. So we're really opening up the university and we're adding many, many students. Um, and so we have, okay, ever uh, changing perspective on the role of the college and university in life. And of course, architecture is changing as well. We have planners and administrators who are developing a keen awareness that these master plans were not necessarily being followed to the letter. Um, and being adhered to happily ever after. So, you know, it's, do you have a master plan? And if you do, is it something that envisions change? Something more a la Frederick Law Olmsted, who saw that, you know, you're designing a campus that is going to be a living, breathing entity. And that will be added to over time and changed in different ways. Um, so although the new colleges have been founded uh, and campuses built following World War II, many more have undergone additions and renovations um, that have not adhered to earlier um, conventional college architecture or neatly laid out quadrangles. Um, coherence was still, perhaps for some, a platonic ideal, but it was sometimes an impractical, impossible goal over time. So two examples of buildings constructed as much for visual effect without an emphasis on matching uh, and in, in terms of having like different kinds of public space are the three chapels built at Brandeis University or Kresge Auditorium at MIT, which is which across my sister's college dorm, by the way. Um, we have modern campuses such as Brandeis. Um, in Waltham, Massachusetts, outside of Boston, which uh, we have Hampshire College uh, outside of Amherst, um, Massachusetts. We have the New York State Public University, University of Binghamton in upstate New York. Um, all of these have, I, I want to say, unimpressive architecture, <laughs> but the campuses themselves are in some ways more Olmsted-like in terms of not being matchy-matchy in terms of the public spaces, having different types of public spaces on one campus, um, not being totally symmetrical. Uh, these, they're, I would have to say, more eclectic. And yet, being intentional in terms of having public spaces around and not um, seeing the importance of that. Because if you look at other universities, you see places where the public spaces have been very much gobbled up by buildings and have lost um, that feel that they once had. Um, 
we have other universities that completely lose that Olmsted ideal because they've built high-rise dormitories um, without the luxury of having smaller dorms. Um, so you have campus programs that try to create sort of smaller communities within these larger buildings. I don't know how successful they are. You know, I'm sure that some are and some aren't, but, but not using the architecture and the campus layout to do that necessarily. Um, and you could think Boston University or NYU, like examples, or uh, State University uh, at Albany also has these very large uh, concrete dorms. Um, and even concrete at Albany, concrete public spaces that sort of a reminiscent of government center in Boston and not the campus as the green space. So I've been quite negative here <laughs> the last few minutes, but there are modern examples of pretty campuses that capitalize on their surroundings, on nature, um, and that really provide for nice public space. So I'm going to uh, take our last few couple of minutes to look at some of those. One is the University of uh, California at Santa Cruz. There's lots of trees, lots of public spaces, pleasant spaces to walk or to sit outside, meandering paths, smaller colleges within the university. Uh, this is basically kind of a, a, a Western uh, Pacific version, if you will, of what Olmsted sought to achieve a hundred years earlier with a very different architectural design at Smith College. Uh, you can look at the University of Mississippi, Old Miss as it's known, um, in Mississippi, in Oxford, Mississippi, or Grinnell College in Iowa. These both represent beautiful mixes of architecture from the late 19th century into the 21st century, um, and, that, and schools that have managed to keep lovely public spaces that are well used. All right, so we come we come to the end of our episode. I hope you've enjoyed this, um, the going back and forth in terms of trends and, and looking at different universities. I'm not sure what our next episode is going to be. I am currently researching the history of the pretty new Moynihan Station in New York, so we will definitely have an upcoming episode on that. So you enjoy your coffee or tea or your water or perhaps evening beverage, I don't know, or maybe you're falling asleep to this episode and you're already asleep, but have a wonderful day, have a wonderful couple of weeks, and I will uh, see you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>